And so what I'm going to poke at here is sort of related to that. Um, I think, you know, word of God, most people, when someone says the word of God, most people think they mean inerrant, authoritative, perfect in all regard, fell out of the sky as a fully formed leather bound golden ink book that, you know, cannot be examined in any way. Um, and that I think is an entirely useless and counterproductive way to look at scripture. Yeah. King commies, look out, tell them, look out for my worldview. Cloudy when you sinking, got you thinking it's a whirlpool. Caesar in your pockets, you can't see who's in your pockets. But Stevie's inner visions touch your eyes and make the world move. Wifey bob her head and make her curls move. Crown jewel is character, and this ain't immortality with fairy dust. Never land, never say I'd never Welcome get through the Belfast podcast dedicated to those deconstructing and reconstructing their faith. This week, we got another episode with Daniel. He was gracious enough to come back on the podcast. Uh, we had a great time, again, um, just talking about um, the Bible, talking again about seeing it as a story so, um, a little bit more specifically this time, talked about different narratives, different themes. Um, we talked about the, the big theme he wanted to draw on for this episode was the concept of divine marriage as it's seen in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Uh, and then we spent some time talking about inerrancy. So that should be a lot of fun. And that got kind of wild. So it was great. It was a great time. So Daniel, if you listen to this, thank you again for coming on the podcast. Hope to have you on more. Um, it's always a joy to talk to you, man. And uh, yeah, hopefully you guys enjoy this one. As always, uh, hope you find it encouraging, inspiring, challenging, and useful. And as always, I will see you in the next one. Okay, we're back. Um, well, Daniel, it's good to see you again. Good to see you. We've already been talking off air for about 20 minutes, but... Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, I have two questions for you to start off with, a bit shorter, before we get to our main topic. Yeah. Um, first question is... Um, and I'm genuinely curious about your response, but then this is also kind of selfish because I want to give a bit of advice. Yeah. Uh, have you, after being on last week, thought any more about your podcast you want to do with your friends? Um, a little bit, but not much. Okay. Sorry, I'm trying to get this hard drive plugged in. Um, it's giving me some problems. Yeah, a little bit. Um, honestly, not, not a ton. Um, but. Why is this not working? Sorry, I wanted the start of this to go better. You might have to edit this out. Um, I thought, you know, oh, just plug in the hard drive and the document will come up. And it'll be Sometimes smart. it takes a few minutes for, it's depending on what kind of hard drive it is for your computer to boot it up. Usually it just like, okay, I'll get into that. If I might have to do some of this from memory, that'd be interesting. Um, okay, so yes. Once we get, if it doesn't pull up by the time we get there, we can figure it out. Yeah, okay. Um, okay. So cut here. And yes, I, um, I've given that some, some thought, not much. Um, I haven't talked with any of the guys about it that I would be doing it with, but, um, seeing how 
last time went and how much fun it was just to sit down and talk and um, explore ideas in this sort of format. I, it's definitely something that I'm leaning more heavily towards doing and maybe not as distant in the future as I thought um, initially. So yeah, that's, I guess my short answer. Okay, good. Good. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I guess I could, once you decide, yes, I'm going to do it. I could give you a little bit of a crash course on just the, yeah, some of the resources I use. And it was, it was very much the classic, uh, you know, how credit card companies will vie to be the first credit card that you use. Cause you're most likely to stick with them. Yeah. It was very much that where the first couple of things I heard of or knew about was what I jumped to. And I'm, you know, yeah, pretty not dogmatic, but uh, people ask me, Oh, do you know about this thing or this thing? And I'm like, no, yeah, no, I know nothing about that because all I've ever used is, uh, is um, what's it called? Is uh, Podbean. Like people ask me about uh, like Anchor and all that stuff. I'm like, yeah. I know nothing. Yeah. Uh, but I pay about a hundred bucks a month or a month. Gosh, no, a hundred bucks a year for a Podbean account that lets yeah. me upload unlimited amounts of of audio. That's pretty. Which good. is which then connects to all the other. It's the it's 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 the host. So think of it as like Squarespace for a website, right? Yeah. Like Squarespace yeah. hosts the website. Mm-hmm. That's Podbean is the host for, um, for the podcast. So then yeah. that links to all the other places people find them. Um, yeah. yeah, you need like some cover art, get a Podbean account because you're probably going to, you get eight free hours, I think. But okay. I ran into that four episodes in. So yeah, I had to, I had to get a, uh, I had to pay for an account, which is fine. Okay. Well, yeah, no, I'll definitely keep that in the back of my head. And if and when I start to do this, um, I'll definitely be hitting you up for a lot more advice and maybe even some collaboration. Uh, probably oh, I'd love to. I'd love to. You are you are in the rare league of recurring guests on my on my podcast. So, <laughs> and you're just second time. I mean, there's probably going to be more. Yeah, I, I mean, I would 100% be willing. So as long as I have the time to talk. Uh, yeah. And I have some, some technological advice that I could give you guys too, depending on how you want to physically do it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Right now um, I live a good distance away from the other two guys who live not too, too far from each other. So if we were to do it in this situation, it would have to be um, at least somewhat remote. But, you know. I mean, as you've seen, Zoom is a great resource for this kind of thing. Even for sense. friends of mine in Kansas City that I want to hang on, I'm just like, we'll get on Zoom. Yeah. We can record both of us next to each other. We can record the audio. Then the as I end this meeting, the audio gets exported separately from the video. So That's then cool. I edit the audio in Adobe Audition yeah. and then edit the video in Premiere and then dub the audio over the video that I've edited. Wow. And then once I'm done editing and export the video that gets posted to YouTube, then the audio gets exported by itself. That's get posted as a podcast episode. So, so does itself after that. Adapt. Yeah. So zoom really helps streamline the post-production process. The very, very, that's good, that's good to know. Gorilla ish post-production that I do. Um, but yeah, if, and if, 
I mean, if you aren't familiar with editing audio or anything, dude, YouTube, just YouTube it. Yeah. That's what I do all the time. The other day I was even YouTubing stuff I already knew how to do, but forgot how to do. So. Yeah. I, um, I think I've edited one or two sound bites before ever. So, and it's been years. So definitely not my strong suit. I mean, the, the learning curve in the beginning, depending on what software you use, can be a little steep. Yeah. Um, but after probably four or five episodes going yeah. through it, doing it, you'll learn tricks about how to preset things and oh, yeah, all that sure. kind of stuff. So, yeah, I was just curious if your mind had changed at all. Like, oh, yeah, I definitely want to do that. Or heck no. Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, it was... Uh, like we were talking about before we started the recording, hearing hearing yourself talk is always weird. And then hearing myself talk while your intro and outro were rolling was really strange. So, cause I'm used to listening to you. Um, so it's, I don't know, it was, it was cool. That's weird to hear. Oh yeah, no, I'm sure. <laughs> when you commented and you were like, I've been following you for six months. I was like, what the heck? This is no, I'm sure. I'm sure. It's definitely a weird thing. Because you're talking to someone who has, you know, not quite 900 all-time plays on his podcast, which isn't yeah. very much. About 50 plays an episode, generally after a month. Yeah. 61, I just looked. YouTube subscribers, the goal is 100 by the end of next month. Yeah. But, yeah, like not even really making waves out here just well you make the small waves and one day hopefully it'll become big waves hope so so my second question yeah is more having to do with education okay your view on uh, let me say it this way your view on a specific portion of your master's education right now yeah. in theological study yeah so the other day I was, so I have my fiction bookshelf in here. Uh, and then I have a bookshelf that's in our living, living room of the, theological work. And I was looking at it a few mornings ago and I saw, I have two books that I'm very proud of owning, but I have not read. The first one would be E.P. Sanders, Paul and Palestinian Judaism. I bought the 40th paperback edition, which I love. Uh, yeah. Yeah, as me and my roommate call it, big book energy. Um, it's in my Instagram bio. It's in my Instagram bio, by the way. But yeah, I one I just this waxy ish kind of cover that's happening for paperback books now. I kind yeah. of like. Yeah, no, I agree. So, I have one. It's actually right there. So I have this book. Haven't read it. Foundational work in New Testament scholarship. Basically, started the new perspective on Paul. Kind of, maybe not, but yeah. it's the landmark book that everybody points to. Gotcha. Then, in if that's the start of the new perspective on Paul, I definitely need to pick it up because I found myself in the minority when it comes to that, and um, at least in some of the circles that I run, and so I'll need some something to cite. Second, in the same vein, I have the first of NT Wright's four or five part series, depending on how you break it up. Yeah. I know the Paul volumes, two volumes, but the first one, his series, 
New Testament, the people of God. Uh, yeah. I mean, so I just saw those two books on my bookshelf and thought, man, I am two semesters into seminary, getting a master's in theology. I do not know of a class I might run into that will make me read these books. Yeah. And they are foundational text as far as biblical scholarship is concerned, and New Testament scholarship more specifically. Yeah. For the past 30, 40 years, why am I concerned that in my education to become a uh, a scholar that I will not touch these books as part of a curriculum. Yeah. And my thought was, well, I need to find a way to work these in somehow potentially Yeah. because I do not want to do, this was my reasoning was because I do not want to do my field, my discipline, a disservice yeah. in my lack of, understanding so uh i will say to uh, like point to my school um which by the way i'm not knock- knocking it necessarily i'm just saying that this is something i've seen i'm seeing as maybe a deficiency in my specific instance i know that everybody who's studying there or studying in this program even doesn't have the same goals that i do which is part of the difficulty being an institution that has thousands of students one of the great things that happened was my Old Testament introduction class. We had to read this book, Ancient Near East and the Old Testament by John Walton. It was great. John Walton. He teaches at, uh, in, well, it's not in Chicago, it's in Illinois. Wheaton. Wheaton, okay. Because there's a John Walton at my school, so I was just curious. Um, I don't think it's the same guy. but I don't think so either. It seems like an interesting read. But yeah, it's it's uh, comparative, comparative religion and, or, and comparative theology mm-hmm. and mythology. And like, so there's a... So like the chapter I just turned to was is called Cosmology and Cosmogony. Yeah, cosmogony. Yeah, I have um, I have a book on that bookshelf back there. Since we talked last week, the whole office has been reorganized, so I'm still trying to figure out where I have everything now. But um, on that bookshelf back there, the one that I pulled out last week by uh, Currid, he mentions. It sounds like he's doing some of the similar stuff. He's just focusing on Egyptian interaction with. Um, with the Old Testament text, yeah, the Bible. So, and this is this isn't even necessarily with the Old Testament text. This is more so a worldview comparison, I guess. Yeah, um, like he has a whole chapter on how Egyptians, Babylonians, and Assyrians viewed the afterlife. Huh. That's and so compare cool. or contrast to Israelites. Yeah, that's. So but cool. like this book was super. I was also at a place where I could totally digest what he was saying because I was familiar with some of the stuff. Yeah. Um, was fantastic for me to read in an Old Testament introduction class. I haven't ran into many other books in the five other courses I've taken 
where I've been like, man, I am so glad that I'm reading this book. It is totally going to serve me in you know my future studies as a biblical scholar. Yeah, just hasn't happened. Yeah, much less the landmark you know works. Yeah, in in this field. So those are that was just a thought I had. A question I wanted to run by you is: Do, do I have you, the same experience? Do you have similar experiences? Have you had the similar thought roll through your head of? Hey man, there's great works out there, like yeah. monumental pillars of biblical scholarship that I might not touch in a curriculum. Yeah. Um, it hasn't been as much a specific book as much as it's been um, specific schools of ideology when it comes to biblical interpretation or um, biblical studies and historical perspective. So um, part of that is that I'm in a program that is uh somewhat at least ministerially focused as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm not planning yeah. on pastoral ministry, at least as of right now. Um, now, again, if you're going into ministry, that is something that's crucial. And I have five years youth ministry under my belt. And so I already sort of have, I don't want to pat myself on the back or, you know, make myself look good or whatever, but I do have some time in the trenches in ministry that a lot of students coming fresh out of undergrad don't have um, because they, you know, they didn't get the same opportunities that I was presented with and I'm very thankful for. Um, I was given leadership opportunities very young at my church and without the people that were over me seeing what I was capable of and letting me fully live into that, I wouldn't be where I am today. And so I'm incredibly thankful for them for that um, because in my program, I feel like I'm more competent in the ministerial side than a lot of my peers, just because I've already actually done it in the field before. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that feels wasted on me because one, that's not what I want to do Two, I've already done it before, at least a little bit, not in the head pastor role or anything like that, but in upper level church management at a small church, I will add. Uh, but still upper level management of yeah. tasks and programs and things like that. So because of that ministerial focus in my program, that takes away from some of the other stuff that I'm wanting to do myself. So for instance, um, all Greek and Hebrew that I take that's accredited thus um, from this point forward in my program is an elective. I don't need any more language period for core requirements which is a problem because then I'm losing electives that I could be doing the other biblical studies classes on. And so now I'm taking the languages and trying to fit the biblical studies in my electives while also meeting other ministerial and um, other core requirements or check boxes that I have to meet. And so I guess it's a long winded way of saying, yeah, I totally know what you mean. Um, The, the theological bend of my school is very different, I think, than the theological bend of your school. Yeah. Which to it, I don't, I think I agree more with you, maybe not your school or maybe not my school, right? I think you and I vibe more theologically. I'm a definite, I wouldn't say minority, maybe not, maybe I'm, at least theologically speaking, um, I might not be. I mean, I might not run into more students who think, things that I think, but yeah, I think in terms of, you know, questions about inspiration or inerrancy uh, yeah. or the dating of the, of the canon, 
I'm probably more liberal in, yes. in those certain yeah, things. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, or even, a, oh God, a big one probably be eschatology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't even talk about that now because I don't really know what I think. I just know that I'm not a dispelled premium. Yeah. This, what is that? This, dispel pre, pre mill. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Although I grew up on the Left Behind movies. So, <laughs> didn't we all? Somewhere. Uh, but yeah, I think in those natures, I, in, in, in that and in, uh, yeah, just in those things, I probably don't fall under the, I couldn't be ordained in the AG. Which I don't need, I don't want to. Yeah. But it's those things where I'm like, yeah, they wouldn't ordain me as a minister because I don't adhere to some of their yeah. statements of belief, specifically on those theological issues. And that's that's been a big issue for me in general, is I don't think that I could get ordained in any institution because they're gonna want me to conform to what they believe. And I I genuinely feel that it is my call to not conform to what other people say I should, um, but to, as we, I think you were talking about last time, test the spirits and, um, and come out with, you know, be discerning in the way that you approach theology. Um, and so, you know, that's been one of the reasons why I sort of shied, a, one of many reasons why I've shied away from pastoral ministry at least in the traditional sense mm-hmm. um, because I don't want an institution not that I have anything against the institution I think they're very strong and very healthy in a lot of ways I think there are some ways in which they could be corrected but um, I, I don't want an institution or another person telling me what I can and can't say I want to go to the text I want to dig deep I want to ask questions and I want it to inform the way I'm supposed to live my life yeah. So um, I guess back to your original question. Yes, um, definitely. I think that um, what something that I've noticed is in order for me to get the base knowledge that I need in order to function properly and actively in the field, I, I have to read the works that they're reading and do the things that they're doing, at least up front, right? In order to get my foot in the door and understand the field as it stands now. Mm-hmm. But I also want to be someone who hopefully changes the field for the better. And so, you know, how much do I need to be like the field and how much do I need to be not like the field? Mm. It's, you know, there's a tension there, right? I need to be enough a part of it in order to not be that guy on the outside. And I need to understand the arguments that they're making and the positions that they take well enough to be able to agree with them or disagree with them in a well-informed way. Yeah. So um, I appreciate when things are put in my lap that I wouldn't read otherwise, but I also am annoyed when I think there are other things that I should read that may or may not be more important to my perspectives. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, I guess one of the things that I've found in my courses, at least, is uh, 
Um, I'm trying to figure out how to say this. So it's not that I'm reading the fun. Here's the funny thing. Uh, maybe I'm just worried about stuff that would happen to me when I get a mass, when I get a doctorate. Right. Um, because it's so with the nature of what we're doing and getting the masters, the net is cast so wide because there's such a variety of people who get these mm -hmm. that yeah. it's hard to, it's hard to create curriculum mm -hmm. that even though the maths degree is generally for people who are doing more, you know, scholarly work. And then the MDiv degree is generally for people who are doing ministry work. I am still in classes. I'm in those core classes now yeah. that have both people in them. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm for instance, probably not going to pick up this book yeah. in a new Testament course. Yeah. That's a core class. Yeah. Just because it's just not going to, it's not going to be beneficial to everybody. Yeah. So on that, um, my old Testament professor, Super great guy. Absolutely loved both of those courses. Um, but he kept throughout both semesters, he kept saying, well, I could go further on this topic, but most of you are not going to need to know this. And I was like, but I'm the one who wants to know that. Um, and so it, it kept happening that, you know, happening that I would have to approach him after class and be like, hey, can you explain that a little bit more? Because I'm super fascinated. And that was a good relationship, I think, to build. But it was... Um, it definitely sort of showed me the, the um, agenda or the perspective of the, the way the class was being framed for the audience mm -hmm. that it thought it had at least and probably does have. Uh, so, yeah, I, I know what you mean. Okay. Well, I have a fellow traveler on this road then. Yeah, I guess. absolutely. Um, We'll have to keep each other informed on what it is we're reading outside of class to compensate for what we feel like we're missing. Yeah. I need to honestly do a better job of that, but it's hard to find the time. Yeah. I'm blessed not having to work right now. So I do have a, quite a bit of that extra free time Yeah, to read. Um, but then, you know, you get the, oh man, I read so much stuff for school. I want to read something fun. It's so hard. Not it. So, like that's how much of a nerd I am, though. I'm like, yeah. It's not yeah, that yeah. I want to like play video games. It's that I want to read a good fiction book. Yeah, yeah. And not have to read, um, Theology. non theological nonfiction. Yeah, yeah. One thing that this sort of makes me think of, and yeah, I know, I know Tim Mackey is now a big name, um, but. So, so Dr. Tim Mackey, he's been preaching for a good while, uh, had a very lengthy educational period, to my knowledge, um, and it now has the Bible Project. But what's so funny is if you search his name, you'll find two kinds of videos, the videos that people post about him that are positive or that he posts, and then the videos that are negative, talking about how he's a heretic or a blasphemer or something kind of like that. Now, what I think is so interesting about those videos is they actually do a pretty poor job of analyzing his arguments. Yeah. 
as a general yeah. rule, and then they interpret his arguments through their theological perspective. But what I found is that he manages to, so what I was saying earlier about not being able to be a part of the institution because it mandates what you can and can't say or whatever, he seems to have navigated that really well, is he is a part of institutionalized religion, but he seems to have the autonomy and the freedom to, and I don't know if it's the institutions he's attached himself to, or um, if he just has enough at this point, I guess, name recognition to be able to push against the system a little bit and still be okay. But I'm curious to see um, how that plays out for me. And honestly, I would love to ask him how he got where he did as far as that's concerned. Uh, so that's just something that I've been thinking about. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I, I don't know if I've thought about that in terms of him specifically. Uh, you bring up an instant dichotomy of being a part of it and not being a part of it enough where you know what's happening, but not being too much a part of it where it's all you're in. Yeah. Uh, where, and I think you're right. I think the thing that I'm feeling right now that's pushing on me is if I'm even going to be in it, I need to drowned in you know the things that have the works that have come before me to even understand what's going on oh absolutely um so yeah i i think that i think part of what's happening with tim is that what he has is kind of what happens is what happens when you build your own cathedral yeah right when you make the bible project you can yeah and you're not you as the bible project aren't tied to an institution yeah. then you can produce stuff that isn't uh, hard, hardline yeah. denominational, whichever, pick whichever one you want. Yeah. Um, I was yeah. more thinking along the vein of, if you go back and you look at a lot of his previous sermons back when he was pastoring the church, mm -hmm. he still seems to hold a lot of the same perspectives that he has now um, and presents those in a very thoughtful and unique way very skilled very very skilled um, but sometimes he's pushing against what I perceive to be um, the the dominant perspective even in his own circles and so I just I'm curious to know how he navigated that because that's something I see myself having to navigate in the future if uh, my life goes the direction that I would like it to Uh, yeah, I think I, I, yeah, I, I think you're right. And I, but I don't know. I mean, can you give, do you have any examples that pop up in your head about that? Whereas he's pushing against the popular scholarship opinions on not, not, not scholarly opinions. He typically sides more with the scholars and I think and less with institutionalized religion. But what's interesting is that he's presenting, okay. institutionalized he's presenting the scholarly opinion in the institutionalized religion that doesn't typically like that perspective. Got it. Okay. Yes. Yes. Makes sense now. Um, he's bridging the gap there, which is something that I want to do actively, but he's doing it in a way that I didn't think was possible. 
Um, why? Well, because I've seen a lot of people try and fail. Okay. So I don't know. Um, that's just something that I've been, I've been thinking about. Hmm. Anyway. I think that, uh, I, I think this goes back to something that we were saying last week. And then I subsequent let's try that word again. I had a subsequent quant. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that kind of day. I had a subsequent, subsequent conversation with a friend a few days ago. We were talking about, I've been, so this will let people know how much of a nerd I really am. I've been watching Brandon's Brandon Sanderson lectures. Really? on youtube about uh writing fiction yeah do you know who that is i somewhere i don't know where it went are you familiar um i haven't seen any of his lectures but one of my friends who i'd probably be doing the podcast with is a massive brandon sanderson fan okay yeah very prolific uh science fiction writer um but anyway so me and him were talking about that, talking about fiction, talking about stories. And I said, I think this is what I appreciate so much about Tim's angle mm-hmm. as he explains and approaches the text is he simply views it a story as a story. Mm-hmm. I think that and we talked about this a little bit last week. I think that is what helps him push. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, I, I, you don't know how much I would pay to have a, to see a conversation between Jordan Peterson and Tim Mackey. Like those honestly are two of my favorite public. That would make my day, but here's my point. I think they both have the basic underlying ethos of its story. Yeah. So I think that's part of Peterson's, the many cited reasons for why Peterson is so popular but I think that's one of the major ones that doesn't get talked about a lot is the dude is fundamentally about story. Yeah. And so is Tim. Yeah. So I think that when, when you push on the institutionalized or evangelicalized nature of looking at certain things, you know, more or less scientifically, you, you can push on that with story, which is a bit postmodern by the way. Um, but I, I wouldn't want to attribute it just to them because it's way more ancient than them. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's part of his ability to push is to say, look at these things that are going on in the text, right? Um, like how, and Marty talks about this, which you'll get there in Bema, yeah. how the Noah and the flood subsiding and landing on the mountain is a retelling of the creation story. Yeah. 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 And it's not to, the, the thing that is so I think palatable to people is that when you say that it doesn't, they don't, the, the thing they shouldn't be hearing and hopefully don't hear is, Oh, so he's saying that the, it's just a story. It's sure. A story. I could be saying that. And I might believe that. But that's not the point. The point that I'm making is there's a definite mirror here going on. Yeah. 
And you can substantiate it with the fact that afterwards he's re-given the covenant that Adam was given. Yeah. The multiply, subdue the earth. And yeah. Same deal. Mm-hmm. So, but all the pictures, all the images that are used, the way it's described and the way it transpires from day to day, from the window opening and there being light and the darkness and yeah. the birds, the birds of the air and the beast of the field. And then man's the last one to get off the ark on dry land. Yeah. It's creation. It's recreation. It's well, not that it isn't true, but when you can frame it that way, right. When, when you can put on different glasses to view the text, when you help people do that, I, and this is, was the ultimate point I was making to my friend the other day was, this is also probably why I'm weirdly fascinated with comedy is because the comedy and story do the same thing. They disarm their audience. Yeah. Right. This is why when, and I'm not going to give my spiel, but this is why when Dave Chappelle says, I can't say anything true without having a punchline and him seeming to be mad at that. I'm like, but Dave, why are you mad? Cause that's your superpower, right? Yeah. Like the reason you get all of us to listen to you is because you're a genius with these jokes. Yeah. It's because I can laugh at something that I might not initially agree with on your thesis, but if you can wrap it in a joke and you get me to swallow it, then I can think about it. Yeah. Right. Because you disarm me with humor. Mm -hmm. Right. This is why comedy is such a great tool. Same thing with story. Yeah. If you can properly wrap someone up in a narrative, you disarm them. Yeah. You get them to, I mean, look, George Lucas got us to accept that there's, you know, some dark space lord who walks around in in all black in a cape and breathes like he's, you know, going scuba diving, right? Yeah. And there's lightsabers and Jedi's and space wizards and and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, I, I was trying to think of a, like a more crazy example, but uh, but yeah, I mean. And we're like, oh, yeah, it totally makes sense, right? Because the world in which he has created, those things make sense. Yeah. We're not questioning. We're the question of is it, to quote something Peterson would probably say, the question of is it real it isn't really useful, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, the story that disarms us to, oh, let me, th- I, I need to think of a better example. Um, like a fictional story that like proves a great point. Um, well, I mean, Chronicles of Narnia does the same thing. Yeah. Um, oh, so I'll, I'll so I finished reading Prince Caspian today. Uh, I'll I'll give you I'll just use this example. It probably isn't the best one, but it popped in my head. So one of the things I love about the middle of the book, uh, when I'm not going to say spoiler alert because the books are forty, like 50, 80 years old now. Yeah. Uh, so like. You haven't read. Sorry. Right. Like I said, spoiler alert the other day for Greg Gatsby. My friend goes, Luke, that book's literally a hundred years old. I think the statute of limitations is gone. Yeah. (laughs) My favorite book, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. But so in in Narnia, when Lucy finally meets Aslan, right. When all the other kids don't believe that he's there. Mm -hmm. Wink to like believing the messenger, right. And the women at the tomb and the apostles and all this. I think that's what Lewis is doing. Uh, but when she sees him, and we all know who Lewis represents, he represents God, he represents Jesus, he's the line of Judah. When 
when Lucy sees Lewis or when Lucy sees Aslan and runs up to him, she like hugs him and all the stuff. And she goes, Oh, you're bigger now. And he goes, no, you're just older. I get, I'm bigger now. You perceive me as bigger because you're older. Every year you get older, I get bigger. Yeah. I thought, Oh wow. Lewis just wrapped a whole theological argument about, how we view God into this children's story. Yeah. Right. And even deeper than this, this is something that Alice McGrath points out in his Lewis biography. And when he talks about his whole section on Narnia, but the question, the essential question in the language and wardrobe, when the kids enter Narnia mm-hmm. is not, is this place real? Cause obviously it's real for them in the story. They're there. They're experiencing it. The snow is falling They're The yeah. fawns are prancing and all of this stuff. The simple question is, especially for Edmund and, and his other siblings, is they're told all these stories about Narnia, even Caspian in, in the beginning of that book. They're told all these stories about Narnia. And the question that they have to answer is, which one are they going to believe is true? Yeah. This, this goes back to like the, the, the meta-narrative critique I can have against postmodernism at, at another date. But yeah. essentially, to... To wrap it into this this point that we're making is is that even within the fiction that Lewis is writing, he's begging the question of which story is going to be believed. Yeah, and so and he's doing wonderful things, disarming you for. Oh God, there's this there's that great passage in uh, Horse and His Boy when Aravis finally meets yeah. finally meets Aslan as he's traveling through the desert, and Aslan goes. Um, Uh, Aslan talks about he asks him to tell him his sorrows and he tells him the story and and Aslan he talks about how Shasta has been been injured and and Shasta goes so so, and Aslan has that whole thing about oh it was me all right I was the cat in the in the graveyard I was the one who 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 uh, injured your horse or like scared him I was the one that pushed you uh on the boat. I was the one that scared you away, all this stuff. Yeah. And he goes, and, and Aravis goes, or Shasta goes, so you were the one that ru- wounded Aravis. And Aslan goes, I, I did. And then Shasta says, well, why? And he says, I tell no one, there, anyone's story but their own. I read that. To back to go to a conversation we were having before this podcast aired. Yeah. I read that after I broke up with my ex-girlfriend. Yeah. I weeped when I read that. I bet. Because it was like my question that I had asked for so for so long, even when we were together, and especially when we weren't, was and this isn't meant to sound patronizing, it was genuine it was a genuine question, was like I felt bad because I wasn't there to help. And I was like, is like, is it going to be good? And what I literally heard when I read that was, Luke, it's not, it's not your responsibility anymore. Yeah. And there's a, so there's a great book to finish this up. There's a great book by uh, John Eldridge. It's called Waking the Dead. Would recommend anyone in the world to read that book. Um, he quotes that passage actually in the beginning of one of his chapters. And 
and he's, he talks about how when, when Lewis was writing Narnia, he got a letter from my mom. This is, this is, this will tie directly into our question of wrapping in a story and it disarms you. Yeah. He got a letter from a mom that said that she was worried about her son as the more that they read Narnia, the more the kid loved Aslan. And she was worried that the kid was losing his love for God. And Lewis so wonderfully responded. Don't fret. For every quality your son loves Aslan for, he loves God. Yeah. And it's, Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Story has a, a wonderful way of conveying meaning that you can't digest otherwise. Or at least it would take you a lot longer to. Mm -hmm. Which is why I think Jesus in his rabbinic method of teaching does such a good job teaching people. I mean, yeah, you can say, well, he's son of God and you know, all that, blah, blah, blah. But, but he taught in ways that we can learn to teach. And, and yes, story, there's, it's compelling, it's gripping, and it's, it's something special. So yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Then this begs the question for me, and I've asked this question for years, why, why do us Christians suck at telling stories? It's because we don't get it. We I think that, and the other thing I think is we don't want to be honest. Yeah. yeah that's right. Fair. I mean, I, I've, I've literally heard this from people who are in the published, Christian publishing industry that, uh, if you're going to publish, especially at least with certain publishers, if you're publishing a Christian novel, let's say, then you have to have a certain kind of morally good protagonist. Fine. There has to be, this is in the stipulations for publishing. Yeah. There has to be a some kind of conversion experience. Wow. And I don't remember what the third one was, but there was like three points that I heard were essential to publishing Christian fiction. And I was like, wow. So I, yeah, I think we don't, we don't know it a and B uh, so much of like think about I could go on and on about the movies we make as Christians and how I think that they're there's a there's a special there's a there's a ring of Dante's Inferno where all you do is watch those movies. Um, <laughs> uh, but how they just seem to be so dishonest. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's an immaturity to them. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not sophisticated. It's simplistic. And I think it's designed to be simplistic. Which, which isn't compelling at all. Simplicity is not compelling. Subtlety is compelling. 
And the thing that I love about this right here, right, is that it's subtle. I, I had a friend ask me recently um, whether or not, how did he put it? Whether or not that I thought this thing was divinely inspired or whether or not this thing was the word of God or um, inerrant or, you know, put all those labels on it. And I said, well, it depends on what you mean by every single one of those terms, because if you want an obvious answer to your question, if you want a, a moral conclusion that comes at the end of the story that is blinking and flashing lights, you're looking in the wrong place because this is subtlety. And subtlety, I mean, it goes back to a rabbinic teaching method that Marty talks about, right? They buried the treasure in the story. That way you'd have to find it. You would have to yada the treasure. And when you, when you find it actively through experiencing the story, it becomes something tangible to you, something that you can, you can use and play with in a way that otherwise you couldn't. And so, you know, Christian pop culture is full of simple stories that seem good at first glance, but there's no meat. I mean, we're, we're trying to entertain the lowest common denominator. And I understand that a lot of them are about the conversion experience and trying to get more people in the faith. But if you want to compel people, give them something of substance. That's the way I see it. And yes, as Paul would say, there's a time for milk and there's a time for solid food. But all we've been producing as a culture is milk for the last 30 plus years. And we've bred a bunch of malnourished Christians. And so now I'm getting on a soapbox, but it, it doesn't do anything good for the Savior we claim to love for us to produce more empty, shallow vessels that praise him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. And they don't recognize the beauty of the subtlety that's in this book. Amen. <laughs> Sorry, I just no, no, no. That's good. You got that's me going, and I had to go off. No, so. dude, please, please. Anytime, anytime you feel that urge, please go ahead. So, um, in talking yeah, story, uh, yeah, I want to make because I know I think I know you're transitioning here. Yeah. Um, I want to make one more side comment for anybody who might be interested. Go for it. Um, best Christian movie. That's, I want your, if you can think of an answer, I want your answer to this too. Okay. Best Christian movie that's not a Christian movie. One of my top three movies ever, I've ever seen, would fall in, under this category for me. It's Goodwill Hunting. So, speaking of story, to get back to the transition <laughs> you tried to make 30 minutes ago. Yeah. yeah. Uh, speaking of story, you mentioned something last week that is a story and theme thread that runs through. Yeah. The whole Bible. So if you want to introduce that for us, we can discuss that for the remainder of our time. 
maybe yeah. we got one other thing we want to get to, which we may or may not. Yeah. But don't feel like you got to rush this part to, you know, get to that. Yeah. I would like to give this part some justice because this is something that um, I really, really, um, I really, really enjoy and really like. Um, so you've been talking a lot about meta narratives in scripture and threads running through the entirety. Um, and this is something that I think I see pretty consistently and whether or not this was something that was intended from the beginning or um, something that just sort of happened divinely. Um, I, I don't know, but I think it's something that's super super beautiful and super compelling. So I've got my notes pulled up here. Um, You're good. That way I don't forget any point. Um, so I'll start this off with um, in Genesis chapter four. Okay. So the topic, I guess I should probably start there. Yeah. The topic is um, divine marriage. Um, this idea of God being married to God's people. Um God as the husband and the people as the wife. Um, and this, this is something that I think um, is consistently displayed throughout scripture in various images that are employed, uh, both in a narrative sense and a prophetic sense. Uh, uh, the wisdom literature, I think, alluded to this some, but not much. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> excuse me. Well, um, but um, as I'm sure you're aware, Marty talks about um, some of these things. Uh, and I will touch on some things that Marty talks about that um, Ray Vanderlaan talks about and um, Pastor Jim Staley, who I believe is in jail now. Um, I, I'm not super familiar with his work, but I've been turned on to one of his sermons that... Um, was a key piece to me putting all of these pieces together that I'd heard from other people. Okay. Um, so I'm not really sure why he is where he is right now, but anyway, <clears throat> and if, if he's not, then I apologize to him for, for saying that. Um, but anyway, I, I heard that he was not in a good place. So um, divine marriage. Yeah. Divine marriage. This starts in um I'll start with a Hebrew term, yada, and it's something that I mentioned. To know. To know. Um, and if you've been through Bema, you know that this is a, a knowing from experience, a knowing that is deep and intimate that you cannot get from just intellectually assenting to um, or recognizing a concept. This is why it too says a euphemism for sex. Yeah, which is what I was about to quote. Um, so Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. That's Genesis 4, 1. Um, and basically the, the premise of this is that God wants to yadah, like the whole story of the Bible is that God wants to yadah us. Uh, why would an all-powerful, and this is an idea that I haven't been playing around with super long in regards to this, but why would a God who can know all things and um, is out of time and thus, you know, is imaginably large, wants to create beings who have some semblance of free choice. Um, and I think that the root 
answer to that question is a, an experience with them. Um, and what exactly that looks like, I'm not entirely sure, but I think that this may may get on on track with that. So, so sorry, just give a quick um, thought to that question. And this might be a classic Arminianist answer and fine with that. Um, I think partially too the, so this is the question I have a lot for a lot of Calvinists and I'll try to make this short. There seems to be a necessity of choice from the very beginning. Yeah. I go with the reason you have two degrees. The, the, the ability to fail or the ability to choose does not at the same time posit the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The degree of a certain choice or a certain failure. Yeah. Uh, these are reasons I'm not a Calvinist. Uh, but point being that in God's creation, there is, I would use the word partner, um, although some people don't love that word. I think it's very fitting. Uh, there is a sense in which God wants to partner with humans. Um, as Heiser would say, he's created a, a council of heavenly beings that he partners with to do his bidding in the unseen realm. And he has humans who are his family or his spouse in um, certain aspects of Old Testament theology that are meant to do his bidding on earth. Now, he doesn't want just them to do his bidding as robots, but he desires relationship with them. And part of the necessity of choice, I think, in that is uh, without the choice, the reciprocation of partnership or of love or of any of these things would be true. It would be forced. And when when yadain, when knowing, when loving is forced, we don't call that love. We call it rape. Yeah. Right? And if, if God, I'll put it this way, if God is who, if everything was foreknown, like predestined by God, that makes him the if everything was predestined by God in the way that certain Calvinists will talk about him, we'll take make that caveat. This, as a logical conclusion, makes him the inventor of evil and the manipulator of humanity to some extreme forms. And that is not a God I want to serve. And I don't think it is. Yeah. I don't oh. think that that's the God of the Bible. So my my short answer to your question while poking at Calvinist is to say. I think the necessity of the choice is to make sure that the relationship is true and free and actually loving. Yeah. yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think the main problem with that is it turns God into Darth Sidious, but anyway. Um, so let me see where uh, I was. I just finished. The main problem with Calvinism in that sense is what you mean? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the, the, Anyway, uh, I don't want to spend too much time on that because I want to try to get through. No, no, no. Keep, sorry. Keep going. No, you're good. Um, I mean, this is why we do this, I would assume. So, um, okay. So, you die to know. 
God wants to know us. So we get to the part of the story where God is attempting to yada someone specific, Abraham. Mm -hmm. And he asks Abraham to do something rather strange. Um, And so this is Genesis 15, 6 through 21, and I won't read it for sake of time, but I'll describe it. So essentially, um, God lists off a certain selection of animals, and then all all God does is give the list of animals, and then Abraham goes and gets the animals, cuts them in half, lays them on either side of a trench, and drains their blood into the trench. And that's a rather interesting response, right? The, the modern reader would think, well, why is Abraham didn't just get the animals? He did something with them. What is he doing? Uh, I think the logical conclusion, and this is something that Marty points out in his episode on this topic, is that Abraham knew what God was referencing when he was talking about these animals. Ray Vanderlaan makes the same assumption. Um, and the, the thing that Abraham is doing, the thing that Abraham perceives God to want him to do is set up what's called a blood path covenant. Um, essentially, how this typically works is it's, it's a covenant of engagement. Um, so you, the, the father of the groom and the father of the bride, or sometimes the groom himself and the father of the bride, depending on how old the groom is, would, um, again, this is a culture that participated in arranged marriages, um, they would make a, an agreement that um, I will be uh, I will be or give to your daughter a X type of husband, a husband that is loving, is kind, is hardworking, provides, you know, fill in the blank there. And the father of the bride would say, I will provide your son or you a bride that is loving and caring for the family and a virgin and, you know, X, all, all the other things that their culture would esteem. And then they would come together and they would cut these animals in half and lay them on either side of the trench. And then wearing all white, one father would dance in the blood and the other father would then dance in the blood after him. And this symbolized, you know, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, you get to dance in my blood. So um, what is um, interesting here is, you know, we find an engagement covenant being made between God and the the context of this story taking place is Mm -hmm. Abraham is asking for children. Abraham doesn't even have children yet. And he's asking God to prove to him that God will give him children in his old age. And so here God is not only saying your children will marry me or my children, depending on your interpretation, but you will, you will actually have a child to fulfill this part of the covenant, right? Because I'm not going to ask you to do something that I'm not going to, to provide for. So it's an affirmation in that sense. Um, now, Abraham, if you, you know, read through the story, um, Abraham realizes that he can't fulfill his end of the bargain to provide a, a child 
for marriage that will be as righteous and holy and set apart as God requires. Abraham himself has already failed several times and doesn't expect that any son that he would have can surpass him at least greatly in, you know, exceeding God's expectations or at least at a minimum meeting them. And so he sort of realizes, oh crap, what have I gotten myself into? Um, or at least that's how Marty and Ray both read this passage, right? So they, um, he's not even Abraham at this point. I'm, I'm just now realizing Abram. Um, so when the sun goes down, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a great darkness fell over him. And that's a Hebrew phrase, meaning he was absolutely terrified. Um, I think because he realized what he had done and he drove, he had to drive some, some birds away from the carcasses. And so he's been out here quite some time. Um, and then he sees a smoking fire pot and a torch pass through the, the, um, the blood path, symbolizing God fulfilling the covenant. And so Abraham doesn't need to go dance in the blood. Um, so what's interesting here, and we'll come back to this at the end, but what's interesting here is we have God setting up with Abraham an engagement ceremony or, or setting an engagement that we would then expect in a story to be brought forth to some sort of conclusion later in the story, right? And so you fast forward um, when, so my notes, they follow a different pattern than I was thinking about giving this here, but I'll just go with the pattern I have in my notes. Um, there are several, so that's the first step to an Israelite engagement and, and a Jewish engagement in the ancient world. The next step would be when the son gets older and the, the, uh, the daughter get older and they would, um, they would be ready, you know, old enough to get married. And so, um, we have this image of the, uh, the feast cup. So the son would leave his father's house and he would go to the house of the father of his soon-to-be bride. And the father would throw a feast and the son would bring his entourage and they would all be you know, partying at the feast or whatever. And the wife would be away in a back room, not at the feast. Um, obviously on purpose, but it was sort of treated as though it was you know, happenstance. And am I doing a decent job of explaining this? Is this all making sense? Yeah. So you're basically talking about the first bachelor party. Yeah. 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 So, so they're all, you know, having a, having a good old time. And the son supposedly happenstance mentions, Hey, where's your daughter? And yeah, the father's like, Oh, let me go send a servant for her. And so he sends a servant for her and she comes in wearing white with a veil. And when she's in, it's the groom's responsibility. He takes a cup and he fills it with wine and he's supposed to hand it to her. I think he drinks from it first and then he's supposed to hand it to her. And he says, this is the cup of a new covenant that I'm making with you today. She can do one of two things. She can. Um, so we've heard that language before, right? This is a cup of a new covenant that I'm making with you. Where, where have we heard that language? Jesus. Jesus. He says it at Passover. Passover. 
instituting the Lord's Supper, right? And so Jesus is using explicit wedding language to them in reference to the way he is interacting with his disciples, the way in which God is interacting with his people. Now, the bride can do, let me make sure that I'm getting this entirely. Um, yeah. So what happens is um, if she accepts the cup, the cup of the covenant and drinks, he then goes away and he will say something like, drink this in remembrance of me while I'm away. So again, the same sort of language. And he would go to, again, same sort of language, prepare a place for his new bride. Now we have all sorts of eschatology caught up in this phrase, right? And I'm not going to say that this eschatology that we've developed is inherently wrong or whatever, but what I am saying is I think we've missed the point. The point is not Jesus is going to prepare a place for us and it's going to take a while and then he's going to come back and get us. The point is he's using wedding language to describe his relate our relationship with God and him as his bride. And so him going to prepare a place for us, what's funny about this phrase, um, there's an, a Jewish story that's told, um, I believe it's, it might be Midrash or Mishnah, um, but the, um, the soon-to-be husband is working on the place he's preparing, and it's a place that's built off the side of his family's house. And so they go to live with his family, which is why it's weird in Genesis um, one or two, when it says that the man shall leave his father and mother, because that's not how it traditionally happened there. Um, it's actually a reversal of the cultural expectation, but anyway, it's just a fun little trivia point, I guess. Um, and so he leaves to go prepare the place, right? And this is his father's last opportunity to teach him something. And so his father is the determining factor on when the place is ready and when he can return for his bride. And so there's this story that this um, frustrated soon to be groom has been working on this. And he says, you know, someone asks him, when is your, when is your wedding? When is your wedding coming? Uh, you know, we heard that you're working on this place. And he says, I don't know. The rocks don't know. The angels in heaven don't know. The stars don't know. Only my father knows the hour in which I will go get my bride. So again, Jesus is using this very charged language of a wedding to display his relationship to us. Um, and so that's what happens if the, the wedding is on, right? And the wife or the, the wife-to-be accepts the um the covenant and so then you know and i'll get with the, the rest of that that process in a minute but before we before i get to that the the other alternative at that feast is that she can turn to her father and say um let me i want to read the words exactly um father if it is possible may this cup be taken from me yet not my will, but your will. Where we heard that language before. Jesus in the garden. Yeah. And so what Jesus is actually doing 
when he says that statement is he's saying, God, I don't want to marry this people. Mm. This is going to suck. Please no. And obviously, the father said, no, you have to do it. And so, um, you know, there are a lot of theological implications of that that I don't really want to get into. And some people would claim that that's problematic. And I'm still working out all the... the Wait, why? This. Well, I've heard some people say, well, then that's the father forcing, forcing his oh. will and not, and yada, yada. I mean, and that comes from pretty liberal-leaning theological bends. But, um, but there, you know, there are some interesting things there that I'd like to dive more into. But what I think is clear is that the Gospels are painting this as a, a moment of marriage mm-hmm. um, in a very intentional way, very intentional way. So um, we talked about the, let me see, going to prepare the place and all of that. So <clears throat> Jesus is like all in for this wedding thing, you know, obviously. And there's another time actually that I skipped that we'll go back to now um, at Mount Sinai, where we get a lot of wedding imagery, right? Um, Marty talks about this in Bema. Um, parallels with Mount Sinai and an Israelite wedding. Um, when the bride, before the bride shows up, she's supposed to be consecrated. So she goes through a ceremonial washing. At Sinai, the people are consecrated. They ceremonially wash. Um, it's actually the same, I believe, word of consecration used in both cases. Um, then there is a shofar blast that is given um, to announce the, the entrance of the bride. There's a shofar blast in Exodus 19. Um, And from this, we get the Feast of Trumpets. Um, So there's some links to to that whole strain of thought. Um, Let me think. The one of the phrases that God uses to describe his people in Exodus, I believe it's 19.5, is treasured possession. This is um, language that's also used to describe a bride on her wedding day. So that's very intentional as well. Um, And then, you know, Marty's main thrust of argument here was the chuppah, which was the, um, is a veil or um, canopy that goes over the bride and the groom as they stand together. Um, for the ceremony and we see God's and it represents God's presence at the ceremony, the wedding ceremony. Um, And on Mount Sinai, we're given a cloud of God's presence that rests over the people um, from the top of the mountain. And so we get a lot of that same wedding stuff there. Um, What's even more interesting. Have you ever, have you heard of the obscure law in the book of Numbers where um, if someone is suspect, if a woman is suspected of adultery, she's supposed to eat dirt off the floor of the um, tabernacle. And mm-hmm. then if she has a discharge, she committed adultery and is then stoned to death. And if she does not, then she's fine. Um, yeah. So it's really weird and obscure law. Let me see if I can find that. Uh, it's Numbers 5. 20 through 28, I believe. Um, 
really weird, esoteric, very, a lot of people have a lot of problems with it um, for some valid reasons. But what I think is so interesting is that this law actually gets invoked at, um, at Mount Sinai in the instance of the golden calf. So Moses comes down from the wedding ceremony between the people and God with the ketubah, which is a list of 10 rules that the relationship is supposed to be about. Marty references this too. Um, and so those 10 rules are supposed to define the relationship between the husband and wife. And he comes down the mountain and he sees that the, the bride is committing adultery at the wedding ceremony. The people are now worshiping another God. And so um, he breaks the ketubah. A lot of people think, you know, this is out of some kind of intense anger. Well, I mean, they just broke the covenant. There's no point in having these anymore. And he's probably, I mean, it, I believe the text says he's angry, but um, there's what he has in his hand is no longer useful in his mind. And so he breaks it. And then he does something weird. He grinds the, the golden calf into dust, puts it in water and makes the people drink it. And I think 2000 of them die or something like that. He's enacting the law from numbers. The, you know, you take the dust and you make the adulterer drink it. And then, you know, they, by what happens to them, they are judged as either, you know, guilty or innocent. So we see all of this sort of wedding stuff at play. Um, and then I feel like there's one more thing. Oh, yeah. So throughout the prophets continuously, Hosea, Ezekiel, um, those are the two right off the top of my head. Um, we, we see the, um, the people of God who are rebelling referred to as like prostitute or whore or something like that, as though they're committing adultery against God. And so, you know, there's this wedding language that's charged throughout all of it. And I might be driving this point home a little too hard, but you know, the point's coming across, right? So um, the one last interesting point, and then we'll I'm not yawning because you're boring. I'm yawning because I have an yeah. evening. No, Five I, hours. I, I get it. Um, I'm actually pretty hungry too. Uh, I just got to wait till my wife gets home. So, <laughs> um, so let me see where, uh, oh yeah. So the one last point, and then I'll drive this home. The, um, there are, I believe it's only two divorce laws in the entire Old Testament. Um, and both of them, one of them specifically caused quite a lot of controversy in the first century. And Jesus weighs in on this debate. Um, but within these two laws, there are typically two interpretations of what constitutes a legitimate right to divorce. One is a man can divorce his wife for any and every reason or only for adultery. And Jesus comes down on this. Um, but the um, what's interesting here, right, is the, um, let me see, where is it in my notes? So, yeah, so there's that, you know, you can end a, you can end a marriage through divorce. And so that's, you know, adultery or any and every reason being the two standards. Um, or the only other way a marriage can end is death. 
right? So you've got those, the two sides of that coin. So God has committed himself to this marriage covenant in the beginning with Abraham, right? He said, I'm going to do it. He reaffirms that commitment by going through a marriage ceremony with Abraham's children at Mount Sinai. And Jesus is then using all of this wedding language to to like set up and establish what he's about to do in the kingdom. Now, the only way, and I don't mean this in a replacement theology kind of way, I'm not a replacement theologian by any stretch of the imagination, but the only way that um, we, the people who have broken this covenant, can get out of the covenant is through death or divorce. Now, we don't have the right to divorce, right? Because we haven't committed adultery or because God didn't commit adultery, we did, right? So the only way we can get out is death. Well, God gives us another way out through Jesus' death on the cross. He loved us so much that he died to end that covenant. Now, what's also interesting is that he rose again to institute a new groom for us to marry every single time we commit adultery against him. What's even crazier is that you realize, like I said in the beginning, Abraham realized that he could live up to his end of the bargain, right? And so God walked through twice. Now, what I said that it meant was if you know, if Abraham walked through, it'd be like, okay, so if Abraham breaks the covenant, Abraham dies. If God breaks the covenant, God dies. Well, God walked through twice, which means if God breaks the covenant, God dies. But it also means that if Abraham breaks the covenant, God dies. So the moment that God, in the presence of a torch and smoking pot, passed through that blood path, he sentenced Jesus to death on the cross. Hmm. Hmm. It had to happen. Yeah. So that's really all the high points. Um, I think I go a that's little good bit stuff in the sermon, but um, now before we wrap up this, Second, because I don't have anything else to add. I don't want to add anything else. Okay. Except for this. Do you have the verse in there where Paul likens the new covenant to a bride whose husband has died? So um, I referenced that at the very end. I didn't actually reference it here. Like I said, I have a little bit more, um, but I really hit the, the main thrust home. I don't have, I don't think I have the verse listed in that document. Do you have the verse pulled up? Because I was planning on adding it. No, but I was going to ask you if you knew the reference. I don't know the reference off the top of my head, uh, but I need to look into that. Um, How did you word it again? I think he talks about it as... I think he likens the, his analogy is a woman who can't get out of her marriage unless her husband dies. Yeah. 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 Where, I, I, know, I found know. it. Do what? 
Have you found it? No. Let me look. And I didn't even Romans seven one through six. Okay, let me. Let me pull that back up then and add that in there because that's right in line with um, what I was saying. The, yeah, as um, you were as you were going on to the new covenant, I was like, oh yeah, that verse. The Romans seven one through six. Uh, yeah, here I'm about to read it. There we go. Okay, do you not, I'll just read it, uh, 7, 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding only, is, is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Yeah. Also, for anyone listening, just keep in mind, this is in the middle of a whole exegetical letter, or not exegetical, yeah. but like yeah. very dense theological letter Paul is writing. So Romans. Not, yeah. But it's interesting to say, let's not just take this and run with it. And yeah not put in the context of the rest of the chapters. Yeah. Yeah. But it is interesting to me that he uses that analogy because it, mm -hmm. it does support the claim that I made that that's the cultural understanding in which they're living in. And the fact that Jesus uses so much wedding language throughout all of his parables, throughout the way he's instituting the last supper and approaching the crucifixion um, is and, and the fact that so much wedding language already exists. I mean, I think he uses that language because so much wedding language already exists in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, but it's, it's just interesting to me. And I think I still have a lot more work to do on it. I want to make it a rather large project of mine in school at some point, whether or not it's my dissertation or something else. I don't know. But um, Here's my other thought, too, as you were talking about Jesus and Passover and yeah. such. If you've read N.T. Wright's The Day the Revolution Began, which if you haven't, I'd recommend it, uh, then there are very clear indications that there's a reason Jesus picked Passover as the time that he would die. There was a great exodus happening, and there was great evil being defeated. Yeah. I, I just, as you were talking about this and all the language at Passover that Jesus uses that is wedding language is yeah. so interesting as if to say this exodus 
this new exodus is only possible with a new marriage. Yeah. Well, and it's not. This, this and and furthermore, like the exodus was the God provided the exodus, which then in turn provided salvation for the Israelites. Yeah. And the covenant thereafter. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah. salvation comes before the covenant. Yeah. The same way. Yeah. Christ leading the new exodus at Passover mm -hmm. and dying as the Passover lamb, as a sacrificial lamb. And also there's really interesting stuff to do about the cups at Passover specifically as well. Yeah. Um, I had my first Passover Seder with Peter last Passover. It was great. Yeah, um, a few months ago. But uh, yeah, as he's leading, as Jesus is leading the new Exodus at Passover, become salvation in turn is establishing the new covenant, the new marriage. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so intricate and they're layering images and things on top of each other. Yeah. Yeah. To go back to a previous conversation, it's subtle. Right. And, um, but it's, it's beautiful at the same time. And if you're not tracking the story and you're not tracking the context, you miss it. I mean, we've missed it for so long. And I think, you know, Marty and Ray and um, several other people are, you know, starting to put the pieces together. And it's something quite special, I think. Oh, yeah. Well, if you have time, do you want to get to your final topic? Yeah. So uh, that question you asked me last week. Yeah, I asked you a question last week and you just piggybacked on mine. So you said you had your own. Yeah. The so question the was... Question? I like the word that you used. What's the most scandalous thing that I believe theologically or are wrestling with theologically? Yeah. And I said faith and works, and we had a discussion about that. Yeah. Um, so hit me with it. You actually sort of referenced this earlier. Um, so I, I got some notes. Oh, no. I don't lose track. Do what? I said, oh, no. <laughs> I'm always scared when someone tells me, hey, you said this thing that one time. And I'm like, oh, gosh, I don't know what I said. Yeah, that's fair. I do the same thing, especially when it comes to stuff like this. I'm like, oh, how much did I how much did I say that I say too much? Um, but so one thing that I think is so interesting about the way we Christians talk about the Bible is uh, we use a lot of big words like uh, word of God and authoritative and inerrant and someone still needs to tell me what we mean by word of god when we speak of the bible that's very true very like give me a, a concrete definition of something. what you mean when you say that i know i know um and i think and so what i'm gonna poke at here is sort of related to that um i think you know word of god most people when someone says the word of god most people think they mean inerrant, authoritative, perfect in all regard, fell out of the sky as a fully formed leather bound golden ink book that, you know, cannot be examined in any way. Um, and 
that I think is an entirely useless and counterproductive way to look at scripture. Um, so I'm going to specifically point at or poke at the concept of inerrancy. Because you mentioned this earlier, and when you said it, I was like, ooh, this would be a good time for a segue. But Oh, yeah, baby, let's do um, it. All right. <laughs> so I really want to get your perspective on this, but I have some notes that I'd like to try to make my way through because yeah, I think go ahead, go ahead. Make having a on some of your notes and then we'll we'll yeah. bounce off. But like riff off of me if there's something you want to say. Okay. Um so one problem that I have with inerrancy is that we have different <laughs> textual variants that exist historically. And so textual criticism and not criticism in the like we're criticizing criticism in the sense that we're thinking critically, right? Mm -hmm. Thinking critically about the textual variants that we have is something that I think is very important for every Christian to do, at least a little bit. Um, if you're the type of person that is okay with living with that sort of thing, that's cool, but you at least need to know what you think about this topic. Um, and I think you should be well enough informed about it to make a decent decision. Um, so we have, I think I was quoted the stat, um, 54,000 different variants of the New Testament, mm -hmm. and not a single one of them 100% agree entirely. Um, now, most of When we say variant, what do you mean? So we have 54,000 texts. Not whole text of the whole New Testament. Whole text, be I believe that's of the, of the whole thing. And really? I think. Okay. Um, don't quote me on that, but we have a lot of them. Okay. We have like yeah. a significant amount and the most of any ancient text ever. Yes. The most of any ancient text ever. Um, but not a single one of them agree. Right mm -hmm. now they don't disagree a lot. Right. And because we have so many of them, we can generally speaking piece together something that we think is some semblance of the original or close to it. But what's interesting, you know, you think, okay, some people have made some mistakes in copying this down, right? That's where we get the variance. That, that is, accounts for a large portion of the variance, but not all of it. Some of those are very conscious decisions that people are making to change for theological reasons. Um, now, that's something that is a whole nother conversation. Um, but that is a fact, and that exists. Um, again, I believe the example that is probably easiest to wrap your head around is um, sometimes it's uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's something like, let me see if I can remember it properly, um, Father, Blood, and Holy Sacrament or something like that. Um, so like, it sounds a little weird and is very, very different. And, you know, which one's first? Why was the change made? You know, yada, yada, yada. Um, Again, that's not my area of expertise, at least as of yet. And so I won't get into it, but we need to recognize that those things do exist and that we have to do something with that. Mm -hmm. um, another problem that I have with this is the um, sola scriptura. When, when I say that, what do you think? Well, literally in scripture alone. Yeah. So scripture alone. So one of the five solas of Martin Luther. Yeah. What, um, where, where, where do we go with that? What does that mean? Uh, everything we need is in scripture. It's on the, how, 
what we need to understand God and ourselves is found in the pages of scripture. Okay. And that's now, all that we need. That yeah. would probably be the operative phrase. Yes. And so what I just spent the last however long doing explaining the marriage meta narrative in scripture using cultural context would be under that standard, absolutely useless, right? And counterproductive because context, if scripture alone, if you want to hold that super strictly, right? Like a lot of people want to hold that super strictly. If you hold that super strictly. Uh, plain reading as your Calvinist would, friends would say, probably. Plain reading, um, everything that Bema does, everything that Ray Vanderlaan does, everything that I just spent however long, an hour, whatever, doing isn't God-ordained, useful, or holy in any way. And so I, I firmly believe that we need some form of context to better inform our interpretation. Um, a lot of, I think, cultural corruption causes bad interpretation. Um, or loss of cultural understanding causes bad interpretation that then causes a lot of bad things in the world. Um, and that can be a discussion for another time. Um, yeah. Cause uh, so just to make your point a little bit further, take a minute or so. Yeah. We're all conversion and culture all the time. Yeah. Right. This is, this is even why. So with certain friends, I can talk about movies and, like I, I am educated about film through YouTube. Like I have a YouTube education in film criticism, yeah, which is fine because there's some great people out there doing it. But my point is, there are certain friends that I have where I will not even venture into that topic with them, yeah, because they just don't know. They aren't aware of the context of which I'm going to be talking about this specific thing, yeah, right. So, and then there's other friends where that's all we talk about. You could say, and I would maybe say, that those friendships have a different culture. Well, now it's very small in its difference, but there's a different cultural context than, or to use a phrase that John Walton likes to use, which I love, uh, we each have our own cultural rivers. Yeah. So, like, while they might not be that different, right, there are certain things which I can't bring up with certain people, which I can with others. Mm-hmm. that I just won't or can because of the context with which I'm in yeah. where people will understand what I'm saying, right? Missionaries go through this all the time. Oh, well, I can't tell you how many times it is my family will sit down and we'll like talk with other ex-missionaries or current missionaries and they'll always be like, oh my gosh, it's so good to talk to someone who knows what it's like. Yeah. Well, what do you mean? You mean someone who has, A, gone through similar life experience than you, most likely, yeah. um, and B, has a similar outlook than you, most likely, yeah. and C, has a certain, like, this is Christian Christianity at large, but in missionary, like, things more specifically, there's lingos, there's abbreviations, there's things we say. My dorm, sorry, this is getting a little bit long, my dorm in yeah. high school so, like, I went to a missionary kid boarding school. Yeah. You want to talk about cultural context? You needed cultural context for the dormitory, like, house you were 
standing in it, to understand yes. things that we were saying, words yes. that we were using. Why? Yes. Because for a bunch of MK kids, we're like, I had a bunch of South Koreans who went to my school. There were some like British kids that went to my school. There was me. There was like a bunch of American kids. Yeah. There was some local uh, Kenyan like kids who went to my school. Wide variety of cultures and ethnicities went to my school. Yeah. What we did was we literally took all our languages and Swahili and we made up words. We, had, we literally had our own words. And the words that in Swahili meant something could mean something different depending on how you elongated the word. Wow. You needed so much cultural context to sit at the dinner table yeah. or the cafeteria table with me and my friends from Mbega. Yeah. Literally people from other dorms were like, oh, you're speaking like you're from Mbega. Like literally knew the terms that came out of my dorm. That's hilarious. Like there was, so there's what I'll, I'll use an example. So there's a Swahili word, it's Kadogo. And it means, I think it means a little, I believe it means a little bit or how we use, we, so we, we coined, <laughs> we coined the phrase Kidogs and it would be like a little bit, but it would change depending on how you, again, you elongated the syllables. So if I would say, if, like talk, let's say someone came back from basketball practice or whatever. Say I came back from basketball practice yeah. and I had to coach my junior that made us run every day before practice, mile and a half. Yeah. And someone from a dorm asked me, Hey, so Byler, how was, how was that run? How was that run before practice? And I'd be like, Oh man, that was key dogs long. Right. Like I'm saying it was really long, even though key dogs literally means a little bit. Yeah. Right. You need so much context to understand what that sentence means. Yeah. So even if you have some context, you're still going to misinterpret it because you you're using the term sarcastically. Yes. And so it's like you you have to know first what the term means. Then you have to know what the term means to you. Then you have to know how you're employing the term. So yeah, it. It's this is so why that scene about language and arrival is so genius. Yeah. Yes. By the way. Yeah. But I really anyway. Watch the movie again. But yes. So context is like to make the point. Like we deal with it all the time in our own lives. Yeah. And and everything we read, right? Yeah. Why like, okay, so like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas up there. Mm-hmm. It's next is one of the books next on my reading list. Yeah. That like, oh no, I'll use a better example. I'll use a way better example. So Great Gatsby, favorite book of all time. Written in 1925, one of the probably the best American author ever. If you don't know anything about the 1920s, that book is lost on you. Yeah. So we understand this with great fiction. Yeah. With movies, right? Mm -hmm. I don't watch Parasite the same way I watch um, Inception. Yeah. Yeah. Why do we not do this with the Bible is basically what I'm getting at. Like, why do we not understand this? It's the same way in every other context, whether it be art or personal experience. Yeah. Well, and I think it comes down to the the implications of sola scriptura, right? Is because we've had this theological label plastered on how we should think about it and how we should approach it. It has then trickled down to a very flawed view of what it is we're supposed to do. 
Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Go, go back to inerrancy real quick, though. Give, give a couple points on that. Could you? So a couple more? Uh, yeah. I don't, yeah. Well, Sola Scriptura in like cultural context was baked into your thing about inerrancy. And then you gave the textual criticisms of uh, like the variants of the documents that we have. What about the text itself? And I, I mean, we can talk about Masoretic versus Septuagint. There's some very interesting things going on there. I sent you some videos about that earlier. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you have any examples of, so like one that I've heard, here's, here's my rough, if you want my just rough, like two minute take on inerrancy yeah. and why I have a problem with it or why I think it's maybe a useless argument to have. Yeah. Authoritative. I'll quote my buddy, John authoritative. Yes, definitely. Inerrant. Hell no. Why? Yes. Uh, well, first of all, we have to talk about, is it the Masoretic or the Septuagint? Because mm-hmm. there's different, like, as we talked about in Deuteronomy 32, yes. sons of God, sons of Israel, that makes a huge difference. Sure does. In how you look at the rest of the Old Testament. Yeah. That one word. Yeah. So is if it's sons of Israel, sons of God, I think it's sons of God, but you could argue, well, it's inerrant. So like, what, but then I'm like, which one are you picking? Yeah. Right. So there's a yeah, technical difference that so many people don't understand is like, is it the ancient Jewish Masoretic text or is it the Septuagint text yeah. that was all Greek? Right. So language, we're already letting someone translate the text for us at some level. Um, that, don't even get me started on translation. Oh, that's a whole nother. You know what? I'll go there if, if you got time. Yeah, no, I got time as long as you got time. Okay. Um, I will make one more. Like I made this point last week when we had a discussion. Yeah. Matthew's literally changing words mm-hmm. yeah. in the yeah. Septuagint copy that he probably knows in his head because he hasn't memorized because he's a good yeah. Jew. And or no, he's not a good Jew. Yes, he was. He was a tax collector who was. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So the joke still the joke and the point still stand. Um. Matthew probably has something of that in his head as yeah. he's writing his gospel. And he says, no, I'm literally changing this Greek word to mean exorcism and not bring forth because I want to make a theological point in this thing, yeah. this biography that I'm writing about the life of Jesus. Yeah. Right. Um, other example I used earlier was like Paul talking about the rock in the desert. Yeah. Well, it was never assumed that no one ever said that was Jesus. The, the major assumption was that it was the same rock, yeah. just narratively. Yeah. So, like, also, here's another thing. This is fun. Uh, this is a fun one to bring up. Peter and Jude, I'm not saying that this book is meant to be in the canon or anything, but Peter and Jude, as part of their cultural context, as part of the dialogue they're having, in their books, yeah, are quoting Enoch. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So you have parts they're of they're quoting Enoch for ideas and like whole, yeah, is as verses, yeah. So like, what? So is Enoch? So if Enoch, let's follow this logic. So if the scripture is all that we need, and the scripture is inerrant, and the scripture references things outside of itself as authoritative. Right, Paul does this at uh, um, Mars Hill. He, yeah. Right, yeah. and we live and move and have our yeah. being. That's not scripture. Yeah, that's philosophy. Yeah. Um. Then, like, what do we do with these? Because if you want to hold, 
like? I think the question should be the most open-handed with truth in the sense that it can come from anywhere. Yeah. Why? Because if I believe in a God that's created this world, that loves human beings, I think he's going to, like, we're going to see him everywhere, whether we see him in full pictures or not. You can argue we never will. Yeah. Like, people are going to be pointing to these true things across time and across culture and across religion. Yeah. So, like, I should be able to say, look, that the... Uh, the symbol of the the Tao symbol, the the what's it called? The like white and black with the spots in the middle. Okay. Um, okay. The yin and the yang symbol, the Tao symbol, the yin and the yang, the Taoist, I think, because it has a T in there, yeah. is like true. It's a true representation of like experience in life. It's not because it's a Christian. Yeah. It's true. So, yeah. So that so like my take is, well, inerrancy. We have to pick a translation, and then you get in trouble because then there's yeah, obvious well, errors in another one. And then and, right, both have textual variants within the strain, and so then you have to pick you know which variant, and maybe some variants of one strain are good, and maybe some variants of the other strain are good, and so then you got to try to figure. I mean, it's super complicated. It gets super complicated super quickly. Um, but one thing that you know, that made me think of too, right, is the problem with translations in general. Um, so there's a Hebrew term that I love using for this example, um, hevel. Mm -hmm. Do you know the term? Mm -hmm. So it's the um, phrase that's used in Ecclesiastes. It gets, it gets translated meaningless, but that's not really what it means. Yeah. So it means, it can mean vanity, which is how it's typically translated. You know, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Yeah. Um, it can mean vaporous. It can mean empty, it can mean false, it can mean idle. So it has, you know, four or five meanings all wrapped up in one term. And the translator has to pick exactly which one of these meanings they're going to pick when translating to English. Well, now imagine you multiply that by several thousand, several hundred thousand, right? Because every, almost every single word in Hebrew is like that. And so every single time you read a translation the translator is making active decisions about what aspects of the word that is there in the Hebrew that translator is going to show you. Now, that is a decision that has to be made when you're doing a translation that is inherent in it. And there are some very good people who do that. But then there are some very good people or some very bad people who don't do it very well and who are theologically motivated um, I believe, and translate things away that should be left in. So that's, that's a rather large problem, um, I think. And I could give some examples of that, but that, that'd be a whole nother long conversation. So based off of this, my general assessment is anytime someone who isn't very well educated in Greek or Hebrew is reading a passage, you should attempt to read it in at least two, if not three or four different translations, because that will likely give you a more holistic interpretation of what the original language was saying. And that doesn't have to be done if you're just casually reading, but if you're trying to do a deep in-depth study, you need to be a bit more intentional about that. Yeah. And here's something else that this is, you know, free resources on the internet that I will give for people who, who, who want to do that kind of thing. It's something my mom does Yeah, sometimes. Um, something I found myself doing quite a bit because um, I haven't yet paid for the Logos Bible software is I will use Blue Letter, Blue Letter Bible 
Blue Letter Bible. I use it if all. You ever, so if you're ever reading a passage and you think, hmm, that phrase or that word choice is really interesting. I've seen that a couple other times in this book or in these few chapters. I wonder why that's used. Yeah. Uh, you can get on Blue Letter Bible. You can look up your passage, mm-hmm. click on the verse. It'll bring up an interlinear text of the Hebrew corresponding to the English translations. And then you can click on the Strong's number mm-hmm. that is given for whatever Hebrew word or phrase you're trying to look at. And then it will link you to a page that gives you every instance of that word in the specific translation yeah. in the text. Yeah. Or every instance of that Hebrew word in the text in its corresponding English translation. Yeah. Then what you can do, this might sound boring to you or it's very interesting depending on what you're studying. You can read all the instances of that word being used and gather context yep. right because what the example i just gave of me being in boarding school well if you were around us enough if you heard the context that we use these words and you'd get what we were saying yep. but if you just dropped in for 10 seconds and heard my response to my friend about basketball practice you would have no idea what i was referring to yeah well and th- that goes to a greater point right is that scholars have reconstructed these ancient languages off of that technique, right? They've had to recognize and adjust the definitions of words depending on how they've seen them used in certain contexts. And sometimes maybe biblical Hebrew isn't quite as good an example for this, but you get Ugaritic or Akkadian or things like that, languages that died off and we didn't have anyone carrying them on for quite some time in any religious function or anything else that's the only way we're able to determine a definition of a word. We could be totally missing the boat and we just don't know. We're pretty sure, but we just don't know. Right. And so context in in which words and phrases are used is super important. Um, So yeah, that's, that's a great point. Here's, I have one question. Yeah. If you have time. Yeah. It's on more things that I'd like to try to hit, but yeah, go for it. This is on the subject of inerrancy. Are you, are you talking about hit things within this topic or? Uh, yeah, in, within inerrancy, yeah. Okay. Here's, so this might hit on one. Yeah. We actually studied inerrancy in my Old Testament class um, a few, probably three weeks ago. Yeah. And we're studying that, like scripture or the word of God. And then and inevitably we talked about inerrancy. One of the things that kept being brought up in my class was inerrancy with now we just discussed this a little bit, but within the canonized original documents that we have. So I guess what, how would we or you answer that question of what about not even inerrancy with an English translation? Cause we know that that's a whole other subject of having to translate. Yeah. But inerrancy God's intended message was, this is not even necessarily See, all right, so let's back. I think, I think I'll get what you're saying. You know what I'm saying? But I'm also like, this is something that Heiser said that's really interesting when he, he has a little portion on inerrancy. And he says, well, it gets kind of tricky because everybody can define an error in different ways. Um, and, and this, what you define as inerrant, tells you or the person you're talking to a lot about how you think about inspiration, Mm -hmm. right? And maybe that's what we can get to here in a second. Yeah. 
but I guess what would be your answer to that? And then this is going to tell us a lot about what we think about inspiration. Yeah. So I do think that the Bible is inspired, at least in part. Now, there are parts of the Bible. Um, I believe in one of Paul's letters, um, he's writing to Timothy and he says, mm -hmm. this is not the word of God. This is yep. my advice to you yep. as a promoter. Now, within the camp, like if we hold this thing up and say everything in here is inspired, well, Paul openly admitted that that wasn't. So, which I've heard that said at church before. Yeah. So, so like, what, what do we do with that? Right. Because not the, this book is admitting that not everything in the book, the authors of the book were telling you that not everything in it were divinely inspired. So that's sort of interesting. Right. Um, I, I do think that um, if not the parts that weren't divinely inspired, I do think are divinely appointed. Okay. And I think that's a good distinction to make. Right. I mean, I've, I thus far and can plan to continue to devote my life to studying this thing. I treat it as seriously as anyone else out there. And I love this thing super deeply. And it's because I love this thing super deeply that I want to treat it with the utmost respect and um, give it the attention it deserves and warrants. Um, so part of the problem, I think, with the original question you asked is that we don't have an original like at all. Um, we're, we're at least a few hundred years off in all accounts. And so, um, if not more off than that. So within that few hundred years, we have variants that have developed. And so it's hard to tell what the original was, right? So it's, I don't want to say it's a bad question. It's just not, it doesn't necessarily deal with the facts as we have them now. Um, and, a great way to say it, it's just a stupid question. Well, no, it, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't like practically, I can't do anything. Yeah, no, no, no I know what I you're saying. The exactly. You know what I mean? But I think it's an important question to ask because of that reason, um, because a lot of people would. Got it. So you could that. ask, you know, you could say to me, oh, well, what about the original, you know, Hebrew text that we have? And then the yeah. response would be, well, those don't. Or what do you mean by original, right? Yeah. Um, then you get into kind of a word game. But then the point could be we actually don't have one unified original text. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, a lot of people like to quote, I believe it's the passage in 2 Timothy, where Paul says all scripture is God breathing, yep. yep. yada, yada, yada. Paul wasn't talking about his letters or any of the gospels that hadn't been written yet. Yeah. Right. And so he, he was talking about the Hebrew Bible that wasn't even officially canonized for several hundred years later, like final canon, final canon. Um, so again, that gets kind of complicated. Um, but while it might be complicated, I do think that there is divine value and divine appointment on what we have. And it is very useful and it is very good. Um, and it is very complex. And to say anything other than it is complex or to try to say that it is not complex is just disingenuine and a complete falsification of everything that we know. Yeah. So does, does that answer the question? Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely answers the question. Um, so I guess I'll go on to my last few points and try to make them quick. Go ahead. Um, I'm going to try and pull so, something up real quick while you're getting that. Um, so one thing that I've been thinking about in context to the whole inerrancy thing is 
the way in which it leads us to idolize scripture and how we almost turn the Bible into an idol. Does that make sense? Yes. No, I've, I've definitely seen this happen a lot. Um, and in fact, I think this is something that I personally struggle with. Like I've said, I love this thing so, so much. But if I love this thing instead of loving God, then I think I've missed the point. And I've fallen trapped to that in my life through different seasons. And it's something that I have to actively fight against. I mean, even now I'm in school and I study this thing all the time. And so it's very easy for me to say, oh, well, I've had my God time today because I spent X amount of hours working on a paper and studying the text, right? And so it's, it becomes very easy for me to let myself off the hook for not having prayed like I should, not having been intentional and in my spiritual practices like I should, mm-hmm. because this thing can easily become an idol. Um, and that I think is something that a lot of Christians fall prey to. Um, and another thing is that we have to, and I may have mentioned this last time we talked, but um, we have to recognize that all language is provisional and can never capture the true intensity of something, especially something as big as God. Um, We can only speak about God in metaphor. Yeah, yeah. And metaphor inherently, like in its nature, is inadequate in defining something, at least in the Western sense. And so um, that's why I think the Eastern perspective is so useful and so beneficial when when it comes to studying this. But it's also good to recognize that God is not literally a fortress. God is not literally a shepherd, but God is like a shepherd. God is like a fortress. Um, God is like an all-consuming fire. God is like these things. Um, and so we can sort of see the ways that that interacts. Um, I feel like a lot of that was, you know, deconstruction, but if we're going to try to reconstruct something from this, I think that what all of that analysis should produce in us about this idea of inerrancy is humility and a willingness to trust others. Yeah. So humility in the sense that we don't know everything and we know that we don't know everything and we should act that out and then a willingness to trust others. And, you know, I think it was Peterson's ninth rule. Was it that uh, assume that the person you're talking to knows something that you don't Correct. Um, assume that the people who were in, who were writing this and who would be reading this first knew something that you don't and assume that the, the people you're talking to about this, know something about it or about other things that you don't. Um, And that should help us be a bit more um, willing to, to wrestle through these things in an active way. I feel like we intellectualize and conceptualize a lot of the things we, we see in there. Uh, Like the fruit of the spirit, for instance, like, Oh, love, joy, peace, patience, yada, yada, yada. And all that's well and good, but patience is something that's hard, you know? And so to actually like, we like to leave it as these, you know, ethereal thoughts that are good to crochet on pillows. But 
when, when it comes to being patient, you know, patience is only something you can practice when you don't want to be patient. Yeah. That's when it counts. And so, I don't know. I just kind of got off on a tangent there, but um, anyway, I digress. That would be my response to your, your question. What is my scandalous view? It's all of that and probably a little bit more. Well, it's great because we share that one as well. Oh, yeah, like I've I said, had, I've, I've had been... fights with people about inerrancy. Oh, really? Yeah. Not literally. Not like bad, but just yeah. People who hold it who never really thought about it yeah. necessarily yeah. in a like critical way, mm-hmm. as in like what is what does it say in the text, and what about the text, and yeah, you know. So, because I think that the there's actually a great Pete Inns podcast episode called the the problem with an inerrant Bible. Mm-hmm. And they talk about this. And I think for many people, the fear, this, this was very much a problem um, in the 19, again, talk about the 1920, 1925. Um, I think I quoted Gatsby as being written in 25. That's not probably not true. Um, I don't know exactly when it was published, but uh, I do know Scopes Monkey Trot happened in 1925. Yeah. And that was, if you look at, I actually wrote a paper on this uh, last semester as, and I, and I, and I called it the scopes monkey trial and the loss of, and the loss of imagination and fundamentalism. Um, I think you were telling me about this, which uh, I stole that phrase, although she didn't put it in fundamentalism. She put it in evangelicalism, which I think they've also, we, cause I'm still one of us yeah. uh, lost a little bit of imagination, but anyway, um, one of the things that was a big concern for people around that time as um, Darwinian thought was taking hold, as evolutionary thought was taking hold, as liberal theology from Germany was taking hold in America, was that the once you gave way to an inerrant Bible, you would then not believe in the divinity of Jesus would be the ultimate. Yeah. Um, then, you know, you wouldn't believe in a fall or you wouldn't believe in God. Yeah. You would, right. And you wouldn't then ultimately believe in Jesus. That was the fear. Well, that's I don't a think slippery slope fallacy right there. Yeah, I know. And I don't think that what, what either of us are prescribing here as problems with inerrancy will lead us to, yeah. but part of this is also you deal with the text in context. And in, like I said, this in my first Genesis video, right. I'm not going to read a, biography of lewis the same way i read the chronicles of narnia that would be stupid (laughs) i don't approach those texts in the same manner the same way i don't approach genesis you know six the same way i approach um john three right it's just different it's different literature genesis six i would say is um mythical history uh and then John 3 is biographical account of Jesus' life. Uh, it's a little more than that, but you, you get the idea, right? These are totally different sects of literature, so therefore I read them differently. Yeah. So I think that that slippery soap fallacy just falls apart if you're someone who's diligent in understanding the type of literature you're reading. 
Mm-hmm. Um, right. You don't read a poem the same way you read a screenplay. Yeah. You know, the same, same rules apply. Yeah. Um, it requires some level of interpretive skill. Yeah. It just does. And I think part of the issue is we haven't taught, we haven't actually taught people in church interpretive skill like that. Yep. I agree. We might, we might mention it, but it actually doesn't then get taught in how we teach about it. Yeah. Well, that comes back to reconstruction too, right? We've done a bunch of tearing things down, but I mean, one practical thing that people could can do to address these issues that I've tried to do is develop interpretive skills. I used to think wisdom literature was super dry. I spent an entire semester in that and the prophets and those are pretty intense interpretive skills that are required to do a decent job of reading those texts, mm-hmm. but it's worth it. Once you get through it, it really is. Yeah. Isn't there a, uh, talk about reconstruction here. I'm going to use the real quick. It's on, a, it's on video. I want to show anybody. Um, but it's, uh, I think the Bible project has a whole series on literature genres yeah or i think it's called literary styles yeah um there's a video on literary styles in the bible um there's a whole series on how to read the bible Mm -hmm. design patterns in the bible plot in the bible um plot i've listened to one of theirs on plot and yeah so podcasts so these newer ones um there was an older series that did called read scripture which tim famously said it was like getting a second doctorate degree to make those um they went through every book of the bible pulling themes and separating them into sections and yeah all of that um but yes if and i will link it down in the description of the podcast or the youtube video that's made uh, the bible project series how to read the bible yeah talks about a lot of these different literary styles and how they interlink and intertwine and what the nature of the text then to use a phrase we've been talking about would be yeah. Um, and those are some great, great resources to help yeah. educate yourself on, okay, so I don't want to just read the Bible as yeah. one thing all the time, because it's not. So how do I do that? Well, you got to educate yourself. And, you know, there's hope. Thankfully, there's great resources out there. Yeah. People do that. Um, yeah. And I was going to talk give another point of inspiration, but I can wait to do that next time. Um, Cause I have an interesting tie in how that works with how we talk about artistic inspiration. Yeah. Well, inspiration might be a whole nother conversation that we can have. Yeah. So we can talk, we'll talk about our scandalous views of inspiration next week. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Dan, it's been a pleasure, a real pleasure. Dog, that would be me. She said, let's go to Hong Kong, but I'm only 18. Ain't got money for Hong Kong. If she'd have asked me last year, I'd have been long gone. Because we all dogs, and I hope we all go to heaven.